Welcome to the Lore Life Podcast, where we seek to navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. In this season four, we focus on big ideas that will change our profession. On today's book club episode, we discuss evolving the legal profession. We're asking ourselves and our guest, Mike Whalen, about ending churn and the legal supply chain solution. I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, Darlene. Hello. Good one. Good synopsis. Good Took one. a whole episode and really got to the heart of it right in that no, first that's line. What we that was do. great. We just get right to the heart of things. <laughs> get right into it. Right into it. Oops. How are you? I'm great. I have a new microphone. And yes. it's, a, it's a lovely gift. I'm very excited about that. And I also have a gift for you. Would you like to, would you like to receive it? Uh, sure. Book club. <laughs> Book club. It's our old book club song. Fantastic. It's been so long since we've done a book club. It has been. And I think even in more recent book club episodes, I forgot that existed. For those of you who have been listening for a long time, you know that that is a song I made with my own voice and my daughter's toy keyboard. So that was like super professional. Early on in our, yeah, super professional. We felt very, very, uh, very thrilled, or I did anyway. You probably were more used to the audio wonders of your technology skills, but for me, that was a big thrill and still was, even all these, I guess, years later. Composed and recorded by yours truly. So perfect. Okay. So, how's it going? It's going very well. It's going very well. So, this is one of those up weeks during COVID for me. Yeah. You yeah. as well? Yeah. It's going well. It's a good week. Do you think it's the news of the schools and the daycares going back or I felt oh. a decided bump this week in my, uh, in my mood. Yeah. There is a light now at the potential light at the end of the tunnel. That's always helpful. I guess the weather's been great. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. I know people hot. come here for some good weather talk, but we've had cold nights and warm days. And is there a better combination? I don't know. <laughs> And and rain. We've had rain, and so my garden's doing well. Oh my god! We talk about law, weather, gardening, gardening. It's really the perfect mix. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of perfect mix, yes. Segue the Mm -hmm. combination of yourself, Mike Whalen, and some of me. um, Was great. Great was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyone who is on Law Twitter, Judah, one of our previous guests, he mentioned the joys of Law Twitter. I think Mike Whalen is a big part of those joys. He was the first person that I really followed on Twitter who sort of seamlessly blends just commentary on life with his lawyerly thoughts. And uh, he's definitely got uh, shared interest with us in just wanting to make law more human, talk, deal with lawyers as full, whole people and figure out how the profession can better leverage that. So I've always been interested in his thoughts. And when he put out his book earlier this year, I thought, okay, when people can stand to think about the future of where we're all going, let's chat with him. So it was great. I really enjoyed it. And it was your first introduction, I think, to Mike. Yeah. He's a very quick-witted, funny, approachable, informal sort of guy. So I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed the chat. And all those things come through in his bio as well. Oh, segue alert. <laughs> so I read his bio. And then we will go right to our chat with Mike. So first of all, let's learn about him. 
Mike has worked in logistics, solo law practice, and legal media. He teaches about the overlaps between those activities and what they mean for attorneys and the companies that aim to serve them. Through his speaking, consulting, and writing, Mike aims to improve the lives of solo attorneys. The legal industry has many well-documented struggles. We can harness the minds and compassion of solos, roughly half the profession. We can have a real impact on an array of social issues, including access to justice. That is his mission. Mike lives with his wife, four children, dog, two geckos, four cats, two birds, and a hedgehog in the Kansas City area. And he needs a nap. So without further ado, here is Mike Whalen. Hi, guys. Hello. How are you? <sighs> Whatever, man. I'm fine. Everything's fine. We're making it through day by day. I find that every week, Monday is a total loss, right? Monday is just dead air as I try to get myself to the point that I can give a crap about work and stuff. And so Mondays, are, but you're catching me on a Thursday. So I'm pretty good today. Okay. You've had some time to warm up between Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah, I think I might get some work done on Friday. I think between my, Monday, Monday to Thursday is my, it's the walk before it's the warming up Friday for at least two hours. Some really good stuff gets done. And then it's the weekend. You got to prepare for the weekend, obviously. Oh my gosh. So this is the life that you're teaching people to lead in your, in your book that we're going to cover on the podcast today, which is precisely why we have brought you on. We are so excited to talk to you. We have wanted to talk to you about your book since it came out. And then things have intervened. And now here we are, end of, so probably come out around the end of August. And we are going to have our first Big Ideas book club on your book, which is called Lawyer Forward, Finding Your Place in the Future of Law. And I wanted to ask you first, why, why write a book now? At some point in this conversation, are you going to take credit for the title? I just want to make sure that gets in. Yeah, get that in there. Tell that, that story. Was That's totally a good one. You. Okay, so Darlene <laughs> loves stories about how brilliant she is. <laughs> that, that might resonate. I, no, I look, probably won't edit that one. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> I just own that. So I, I went to law school when I was 30. I had worked for years, almost a decade, in logistics and supply chain stuff. And it just wasn't me. I mean, it was a good experience, but it wasn't me. And so I wanted to go to school. We had planned to go get a PhD, and uh, then things just sort of went sideways, and my wife was like, we're not going to get into that much debt for no job prospects. So instead, we went to law school in 2008, which is hilarious because it was way worse job prospects and way more debt. And when I was at law school, I hosted a group for future solos and small firms because it was clear most of us were going solo, and I just recognized that early. And that got my name out there as somebody who talks about basic business stuff, as somebody who hosts, right? Inviting different minds to come in and connect. And it really helped my law firm when I launched. But more than that, it gave me an opportunity to teach, which is what I've always wanted to do. And so that led to a conference that I called Lawyer Forward. And these ideas of integrating my pre-law career, my law experiences, my desire to teach and share my own life story as sort of a model of what not to do properly led to this book. And that's basically what Lawyer Forward is. It's a, a conversation about my finding my place and how weirdly I didn't fit in and giving everybody else permission through a system to do the same thing, to not fit in, but on purpose. 
And I think when you first told me you were writing a book, it was called something to do with Star Trek. That's right. It was called Lawyering in the Star Trek Economy, which I, in retrospect, thought was pretty cool, Darlene. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> you, you were smart enough to tell me, hey, bro, like, this is going to chase some people away. Lawyer Forward is a good brand. Go use it. And I, I think it was the right, I think what shifted in that in general, what was going on at the same time that you were telling me that was I had initially written like a how-to book and it was really boring and dry and just very structured in a very linear way. And then I ran into some storytelling. There's a book called Story Grid and I learned about how to integrate storytelling into these big idea books using these principles. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and at the same time that you were telling me, dude, Lawyer Forward is a better way to talk about this because it's this journey forward as opposed to, let me make an analogy to Star Trek and write you a listicle type book. And so it worked, right? It came at the right time. And, and I retold the, the book as principles framed by a journey, in this case, my journey. Well, it's definitely not a boring book. I really love this book. And I think it is, if anyone's interested in thinking about, I think what you do well in this book, and we'll get into it on this podcast, but you, you do a really great job of breaking down what the legal business is, which I actually think a lot of lawyers have never given a lot of thought to. There are lawyers who are working in big firms and they just kind of land there out of law school, as I did, and without really understanding the business model until almost much later, a couple of years in, you start to really understand how that, that works. And you call that in your book, the legal factory. So I want you to break that down and explain it. But you also go into solopreneurs, freelance lawyers. So anyone who is a bit at a crossroads in their career as a lawyer, trying to figure out where do I take my skills and what I learned in law and what do I do with them and how do I deploy them? I think this book is really helpful. I notice at the beginning you say, for the lawyers, we lost too early. That's your dedication. I was really hoping, I don't know why, but I've always been very driven by lawyer suicide as this issue that's out in the ether that we don't really deal with enough. We don't talk about enough. And in what's interesting about this story, I, I mentioned that I framed it as a, as a narrative. At the very beginning of the story, there's a, an old man, an old lawyer, who I call Mr. Anderson in the story. And during the time that I wait wrote, a minute, this I, know, right? I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I know, right? But during the time that I wrote this story, this this book, I had an initial draft where I use him at the beginning as sort of the old guide, as really this counterexample of who I wanted to be, because he was just he was stuck in the churn, he was really miserable. And I, I gave them this example of it shocked me, right? And made me realize I need to do something different. Between the time of me writing that first draft and the final book, that lawyer committed suicide. He killed himself after Hurricane Harvey hit Rockport. And obviously, I don't put that in the book because it sounds gratuitous, as if this guy knew what the legal supply chain was, he'd be alive today. Obviously, that's crazy. But it was this example to me of the end of someone who follows this path that I realized I didn't want to be on. That really hit home. And so the dedication at the beginning of the book is to to lawyers who suffered through that kind of fate. And we just, we tend to lionize. You see this going on with John Lewis in the United States this week. After the fact, we'll lionize people who we were part of the system that held them back, right? Mm -hmm. So those people will suffer their whole lives and then they'll die. And then we'll say, hey, way to go, Carl. But right. in the case of this senior lawyer, 
glorifying this guy for dying at the dais or sacrificing his life to the law. That's not a healthy relationship with the law. And the book is really about persuading people we don't have to do that. We don't have to, we don't have to sacrifice ourselves to the altar of whatever being a lawyer means. Yeah. And it's sort of an oppressive model. Like it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one. And what you're suggesting in the book is that we move more to what you call the legal supply chain type of model. Can you explain that? And then we'll jump into a little bit of, we've outlined some of the key points that you make in the journey in, in your argument in the book. And we'll, sure. we'll talk about those, but we can't without you explaining what you mean by the legal supply chain. Yeah, very broadly, this term it has existed in the ether. Uh, the Suskins put it in their book, uh, the future of the professions, I think, is the one that they had put that in. And I think Richard had mentioned it before, but never really fleshed it out. And for me, I was just applying supply chain principles to the way the law works. In reality, it's more complicated than this. But but the way supply chains work, the way you get a doll in your town from China and it actually costs less than if some local Joe did it, was because across that chain, there are all kinds of connected people each doing the thing that they're really good at. And you could obviously argue that one of the elements of that chain is below living wage labor in China. And that's true. There's always been below living wage labor on these different supply chains. And that's a that's an issue to deal with. But the way those supply chains are optimized is by everybody doing the thing that they're best at, right? That's one element. And then the other element is connection between those people. And so the legal supply chain is basically my argument that lawyers should specialize not just specialize in terms of subject matter or practice area, which is not a niche. I, d- I don't, I, anybody says, go get your practice area. That's an, it's not a niche. A practice area is not a niche. Niche is either audience or problem, subject of expertise. And so the argument that I'm making is specialize, do the thing that you do, become the super ninja at it, and then connect. Because what clients are saying is they don't feel connected to and they don't feel that we're delivering very high quality of expertise. And both of those are true. We're just not. Right. So the point, the thing that you point out, I think, which really summarizes, I think, what a lot of lawyers listening would know intuitively, but maybe haven't seen in print. You, you point out that the way that we work today as lawyers is we generate our value through our hours. And so when you're finished doing your hours, the value stops basically, especially mm. as a solo. That's not mm. as true if you're at the top of the pyramid that we were talking, but that's definitely true when you're churning hours. Then you say that lawyers are highly replaceable for a substantial chunk of the the lawyers out there practicing today, which is tough, especially as automation and technology come in. That's a difficult thing even just mentally to grapple with. And then you talk about the way that this focus on cash for time, you call it, which I liked, uh, leads to isolation, high burnout, and a constant trade-off between income and personal time is the way that I summarized what you were saying. So I think that's that's a really good summation of what the issues are in the model. So let's let's turn our minds now to to the ways or the the things that you point out that that kind of address and help lawyers to fix what's wrong with the model. I liked what you said right in the beginning of the book. You say your success in the future of law depends more on developing your character than on adopting a particular strategy. It's about principles, not tactics. And obviously, I mean, we get along well for many reasons, but I wholeheartedly have sort of brought this into the business model at Interalia. So the other, so I love this concept and I think it's so under, under discussed. I don't think it's underrated. I think people understand this. I think the concept of the rainmaker 
is has always been about leveraging social capital. The here in Canada we say finders, minders, grinders. Do you right. use that same expression? I think Jordan Furlong has said it, and so okay. it's in my lexicon. You've, you've but, heard this, okay? I'm not sure how broad based that expression is, but to be a finder involves a lot of personal relationships and networking and all of that stuff. So. I think that it's baked into the culture that we understand the value of networks, but it's always looked at as for the purpose of generating profit. But I think what you do in the book is you say it's got extra value. It allows you to generate a better product. Is that fair? Yeah. And I think it's, it's sort of a fundamental shift in the nature of employers and employees. When we talk about things like utilization rates, I, I mentioned the report from Clio the legal trends report, and they really got fixated on utilization rates and as a signifier of success. And they defined utilization rates as of the eight hours in a day, how many hours were spent billing and firms who used more hours per day billing made more money, which is about the most obvious insight ever. But is, is that your utilization, right? Is, is what you want in terms of an outcome, a product from your labor, from the people who work there, is hours the utilization measure? Is that the thing that we want to get out of this? Or is it insights, right? If, if somebody thinks they're hiring an expert and we bill as if we're experts, right? If somebody's hiring an expert, they really don't give a crap about your time. They care about how many insights are coming out, let's say per week, I don't know, per project. And if an insight is large enough, it can be one per year. And that could change the path of an entire business because it's about cultivating an atmosphere. It's not pushing buttons anymore. Yes. That's a great way to look at how we could reconceptualize the profession. I mean, right now you go to law school, you're taught black letter, and then you're thrown out there and told you're just going to advise people on the black letter that you just learned. And it feels like so little of the focus is on soft skills, actually listening to the client, understanding truly what they want, and not just quickly accepting a task hiving yourself off, going on a frolic kind of by yourself with research and otherwise, and then producing something that you think solves a problem, but actually for them, isn't a practical solution. Could I ask, if the model you're proposing is better and clients are happier and lawyers are happier, why do people still go to the old model? And why is that still the prevailing model that is doing well? Because only my mom and Darlene have read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. My mom would never read anything that I had read. Um, No, I think, listen, there's to steal from Susskind again, there's the, the line that it's hard to tell a room full of millionaires that they're doing something wrong. A lot about the model, the fact that it's a partnership and you've got to empty the, a lot of these firms, they're going, and Jordan's written about this, for the first two, three months of the year, they're operating on loans, right? Because they emptied the accounts at the end of the year. It's just a really weird cash flow model. And I think it's, there's so much prestige tied up into it that you feel really like you own that. Once you've arrived at partnership status, there's roughly no incentive for you to be anything but the partner, right? And so you're, you're perpetuating that model and it makes a lot of money. Frankly, the amount of money that we make out of on a profit margin is just insane. And we've made so much money that we really haven't had to respond for over a hundred years. There's a real question about how that legislated monopoly is gonna work, right? Once it's gone, how do we continue to charge as much as we charge. 
I think that's right. And I think the at the top, what happens is the most highly valued skill, I think at the moment is bringing in the big clients, right? Like you see a lot of movement amongst rainmaker partners at huge firms in New York and other major cities. And you, in the Wall Street Journal, they published sort of the average compensation at some of these firms and it was just eye-popping. But that relies on your ability to bring in clients who want to pay on that model. And what I've observed over the years is just that when I, I, I used the word pyramid earlier in this call, the pyramid is shrinking in that it used to be funded by a whole lot of junior level work that was valuable because it couldn't be done any other way, right? And it was all human. And so you see the pyramid sort of starting to look more like a rectangle as the work you know, the bottom is coming out a bit. I don't know. I've not got the proper analogy, but. Well, and I mean, almost by definition, anything that you can train someone to do early in their career, like in law school, anything you can train somebody to do once, and then they do it over and over again throughout their career. That is the stuff most easily, not perfectly, but most easily translated to technology, something mm-hmm. that you program one time and then it does it over and over again. So in as yeah. much as what the model relies on is something you can train once and then do over and over again, you're just at risk. It's, that's just a threat. I don't know how far out that threat is, but it's a threat. I think it's a slower threat than sometimes you can feel like it's an imminent threat, but I think it does take a while to turn industries. I know from being in the music industry that you can see the threat, you can have the threat, it can have immediate impact, but it can take decade, like a decade to fully be realized. So it's tough to say, but I mean, I think to answer your question, my personal way of dealing with it is just to try to create a service that's valuable now and that continues to evolve to meet value and customer demand and not capitalize on some of the stuff that has happened. Like one of the things I've observed is that as people have come out of the model and technology has come in, there's not a substantial cost saving yet to the client in a lot of cases. Mm. So I'm hearing that in the RFP process for for large projects, they're getting done and sort of the focus of some, some, I'm sure this is not true for all firms, but anecdotally, I've heard that sometimes the, the cost of the deal remains the same, but there's far less human input. And thus it's a less costly deal for that firm to deliver than it was 10 years ago. But on the flip side, they don't have all of the same opportunities to train juniors on the on the basics. And, you know, there, there are a bunch of different moving parts to this. So, Well, and I mean, thinking about the legal supply chain as a concept, it will initially be a much more bloated, much more inefficient setup, mm-hmm. as opposed to having one person handle something beginning to end or whatever and feel like they can do anything. This is especially true in the solo small firm world where where we're doing everything, getting back to that Clio report, they found that we were billing whatever two hours a day of our eight-hour day. And the argument was, you need to be spending more time billing hours. But of course, we weren't not doing anything in the other six hours per day. We were doing emotional labor work that doesn't get compensated, which in a lot of cases is the more valuable work. It's the stuff that clients actually care about, which took me forever to figure out, by the way. But When you start setting up those supply chains so that you're either spending your full day being an expert, which means theoretically you're billing all day, or you're being the audience connector, in which case you're not billing at all, it will look more inefficient up front 
And there just aren't a lot of law firms that are willing to bite that off, right? To take on the idea that in the short run, we're going to be worse at this. It's, it's actually going to take longer and cost more for a while. But you make, I think that you give a lot of really good insight into that problem by just forcing lawyers to consider, are you an entrepreneur? Are you a solopreneur, you call it? Or are you a freelancer? And I think that's a really important distinction. I have, I have sort of talked through that with people in, when they consider joining up with our association at Interalia. I have said we are an entrepreneurial bunch. Like there is a lot of us have an interest in having our own thing and having a lot more control and not being part of a, you know, particularly structured organization and doing things our own way and all that stuff. And some people find that really, that's the path they want to go. And then others just want to do the freelancing where it's just the work, not the other stuff. And I think, I think there's room for both in a successful organization. But I think it's like the knowledge of how understanding that distinction first as you help people to do. Well, and here's my unpopular legal futurist take. It is that experts are still a thing. They're still needed. People are really focusing on problems. Again, the social function of an expert is not to be right all the time. That's not what they, it's not about data. Uh, At one point, it was theoretically about a chunk of information that they held, but that that wasn't really expertise. And we all know that intuitively. It was more about making people feel comfortable about making decisions. And that, that was bad, right, in many ways. And Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work on that uncovered how relying on experts can often be bad. But I think we've swung a little too far the pendulum the other way to a degree. And most of the legal innovation talk that I hear is about we need to focus on service. Law firms are just service companies. And we need to, that's true that we need to deliver better on service, but we also need to deliver better insights. We're actually not coming out with good advice, right? It, it, there's been study after study done of the quality of advice delivered by experts, and it's not much better than random samplings, right? It's not much better than non-experts making decisions. And so I really think there's got to be a decision in which you decide, do I want to be the person who's a super nerd looking for insights, reading, researching, writing, being a teacher? If so, go do that and do it well. If you want to be the service-oriented person who's always coming up with solutions and you don't really care about the particular problem, but you want to be able to deliver solutions to the problem by connecting to those super nerds, then great, do that. But the again, the key is you can't do both. This thing that we do that we think all lawyers are supposed to be both available all the time and accessible all the time. And they're supposed to be reading and writing books and being teach. It's impossible. And it creates this internal struggle for lawyers that I really think leads to a lot of the depression and anxiety that we have in the industry. Yes, there is. There's far too much of that, which is partially why Mike A and I decided to do this podcast in the first place was to try to really grapple with the things that make lawyers so miserable that we can all talk about, we all acknowledge, but we just don't have a real public forum for discussion about them. So we're we're very aligned on that that quest with you. And on that note, Mike, you have some big tips that maybe I can kind of seed for you here and you can focus on what you really want to leave the audience with. So sure. tips about maximizing your time, focusing on a three-item to-do list, improving your expertise, finding gaps and systematically filling them, 
cultivating a passion for your art and pursuing bliss. So which one of those, maybe all of them, but uh, which one of those would you like to expand on as we start to fade out here? It feels a bit like an exam when somebody <laughs> brings up the book that you published last year. I'm waiting to like see what I don't remember of the book. The tips are all important, but I guess maybe if I was to leave people with one thing, it is this cultural issue of passion versus bliss. And I, this sounds really nerdy, but the very short version that I will give you is that when Joseph Campbell in his now famous Power of Myth talks with Bill Moyers, when he talked about following your bliss, he did not say that you figure out what you want to be when you grow up. Somebody told you when you were 10 years old that you should be a lawyer and you thought it was because you were really smart, but it's really because you're kind of a jerk and the adults didn't know how to tell you that. And so they told you, you you're a good arguer. You should be a lawyer. That is not a good way to make decisions and then stick to that for the rest of your life. Following your bliss, he talked about, was about how you're pursuing your fullness right now, right? And so I watched a, a valedictorian or whatever speech recently, commencement speech recently, where the guy said, you need to have micro ambitions. That is following your bliss. It is right now, what's the next thing? I have an idea of a distant mountain I want to get to, but what's the next thing that's going to get me closer to that? And you do that with all your energy. And if you do that, they just pile up. There's really interesting research on from Daniel Kahneman on the difference between being satisfied in this moment and being satisfied in your when you think about your life. And lawyers don't tend to really be very happy with either. And so what I would encourage you to do is focus on this moment, do the next thing, fine, have a plan, but really be great at the thing you're doing right now. That's following your bliss. You know, Priz, as Princess Anna of Arendelle once said, mm -hmm. do the next right thing. Right, guys? <laughs> Anybody else deep in a frozen tea right now? No. <laughs> I know that expression, but I did not properly attribute it to uh, to frozen. <laughs> I didn't know where that came from, but uh, it's it's good advice, right? Imagine the lawsuits you'll get whenever you don't cite her from. You know what yeah. I mean? Because she's yeah. very litigious. You have to look at she's, her. She's very, her princess she's Anna of that. Arendelle. She she'll get you. <laughs> but speaking of looking out. Everybody look out for our goods and gripes, which are coming up right after this break. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in-house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business-focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support, and gripes are things that annoy us. Mike, would you like to start us off with a good or gripe? My good, and I'm a little surprised by this, is gardening. <laughs> There's this <gasps> weird thing that happened when I was bored because it's freaking COVID. And I was at a Walmart and I bought some plants and I put them in the dirt. And then I found out it's way more complicated than that. And this journey of being outside, it's a slow build thing. It doesn't take much of your brain. And it's just seeing, eating that $500 zucchini. <laughs> 
<laughs> you feel like you got it for free, but then you realize how much you've spent on the, it doesn't matter. It tastes more delicious when you grew it. So gardening is my surprise good. I can't tell you how excited I am to hear you say that. Darlene and I have kidded around about how I need to start my own gardening podcast because nearly every good or gripe I've had this summer has been gardening related. I know nothing. I'm totally making it up. But yes, it's hilarious and fun and hopefully things don't die. I promise you. I have it written down. My gripe is gardening related. (laughs) It is as follows. I was going to say it anyway. My gripe is cabbage worms. Do you know what these things are? What they do? No, but it doesn't sound good. Overnight. Overnight, I went from having a beautiful kale plant, full bloom, full leaves. We were using and eating. Overnight, I woke up and all the leaves were eaten. And it turned out that white moths lay eggs like in and around these plants. And when they hatch, they are cabbage worms that devour kale and similar vegetables. So look at Mike, because... You have to like now observe your kale plants every single night or every single day for the little green caterpillars because they can ruin everything so fast. These are hipster life problems right here. I was going to say like, no, this story is no more kale. Yeah. Kale is the problem. Yeah. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Come after the millennial for his kale enjoyment. I'm trying to be a health-focused father and professional, everybody. I have a house, if not for the kale and avocado. <laughs> yeah. I do like kale. I support your kale growing. Thank Next you. year, you'll get without the with now that you have this new piece of knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's growing back. You'll be happy to know that, too. I'm happy to know that. <laughs> um, my, I have a good. My good is I've been listening to this other, you know, I love podcasts, and not just ours, but all podcasts. I have been listening to one called Guru. Have you guys listened to this podcast? It's a wondery podcast. So it's sort of, they do crime ones, which I don't always listen to, but they did this podcast on um, a self-help guru and hence the name and sort of questionable practices that he was engaged in that people blindly followed and fascinating. Six episodes, interesting and makes you think, right? Think about the most valuable skill in my humble opinion, we talk a lot on this podcast about reading books and educating yourself and trying to self-improve and get better, but critical critical analysis and trusting your instincts if something's not right, this podcast is sort of a masterclass in, in that, in this, this uh, world. So I would, I would recommend it. It's not a lot of listening, so it's a, a quick one. Yeah, I only listen to my own podcast because it's brilliant. <laughs> That's all you that's all you listen to. Well, small plug for that. We can link to that. Yeah. As well, as well as the book. Do you have a gripe? I do have a gripe. It is opportunity porn. And what I mean by that is all these gurus speaking of who keep telling me this is the moment you've been waiting for. You've got Mm -hmm. all this time to write your business plan and build your empire and teach your kids how to crochet. Screw you guys. I if I can get to Tuesday, like I said, that's a win. So you can take your positive vibes and your essential oils and you can shove them right now, Carl. Okay. You can just shove them because I don't need that pressure. All right. Stop with your opportunity porn. We're just getting to the next day. That's my gripe. Here, here. I like it. Here, here. Here, here. Here, here. I do find that there is a lot of pressure. I have not drafted a business plan or learned to crochet, but I have done a lot of house painting. Yeah, this is a bit of self-griping because I do feel that pressure sometimes. I 
we have government money right now for Pete's sake. And in the United States, that never happens. That's they right. just save money. I should be building an empire. And then I'm like, I need brownies. And I woke up today and I did some Netflixing and I wrote some stuff. And that's it. Okay. Hipster, I need brownies. I'm fine. <laughs> I need them. That's funny. Mike, do you have a good or just the gripe about the cabbage worms? Um, my good is actually I had social interaction. I, it was regulation compliant. I had, my friend came over, uh, we set up the, uh, TV outside. Uh, we stayed apart. We watched the game out of doors. It was great. It was just so nice to actually spend time with a friend again and chat and wasn't totally normal, but it was close to normal. And I hadn't hung out with somebody outside of my family unit for an extremely long time. So to the extent permitted in the various jurisdictions you're listening to this, try to connect with people that you haven't seen for a while because what great results. It's rejuvenating for sure. I had a also gardening related gripe, I realize as I'm thinking through. That's a theme show. I know, but mine is that we have a lovely apple tree on our in our yard. It's beautiful. It has beautiful flowers in the spring. Every two years, randomly, it has apples. And those every two years, I spend many, many hours picking up apples off of our lawn. And then it's still a party for all the animals in the neighborhood at night to eat these apples. So I don't know. Apple trees, to me, a little overrated. <laughs> That's, it's a big chunk of time. That's all. I would rather not pick them up, just leave them there. But that's that just makes for more opossums are what come. Do you, do you have, have you guys even seen opossums before? Possums, I think they call them. I think we just call them possums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, possums. Well, the it's O Canada, so it's always opossums. That's, <laughs> See what you did there. Well done. <laughs> We've done pretty well considering so many mics on this podcast, and I think we kept it pretty pretty clear who was. Who I think and... it's because Mike A with his broken microphone largely just shut his trap. I think that really. Oh, I no, I actually made efforts to get involved in this conversation, but Darlene just uh, was a little enthusiastic about speaking with you, Mike. Yeah, Darlene's got this chill vibe. Yeah, Dar Darlene's got this chill vibe, but she gets excited about <laughs> books and Star Trek stories. Don't let her lie. Such to you. a nerd. Super nerd. I love that. when you were getting into the <clears throat> super nerd discussion. I was like, yes, of course. Resonate. Yeah. All about. Anyway, it's good. Let's hear it for super nerds. No problem there. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. We've talked about it for a long time, but glad we made it happen. And won't be the last time, I'm sure, because you have commentary on many, many topics, not just the book. No. And uh, actually, the Lawyer Forward podcast, which I added here recently on the Above the Law Network, is me telling stories about whatever's on my mind. I had somebody messaged me yesterday after I did an episode on cancel culture. And he told me, this isn't what Lawyer Forward was about. So I'm going to leave the Facebook group and whatever. And I was like, I'm pretty sure Lawyer Forward was about whatever I wanted it to be. <laughs> like what, Whatever was on my mind is what it was about. And so the Lawyer Forward podcast is me telling stories and getting ideas from different places uh, to try to make principles applicable, right, to, to law practice. So hope you guys will listen to that. And please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mike Whalen, J-R, Jr. Yeah. And uh, because Twitter is cheaper than therapy. So hopefully I'll see you guys there. And can you spell your last name, Mike? W-H-E-L-A-N. There it is. All right. Whalen. Hey, thanks. We're back.
Yeah. <laughs> I won the right. skill. Thanks again. Thank you, Great. guys. Okay, we will talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.